Romans 7, 7 through 12. Please stand as I read God's Word. And it says this. What shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin. For I would have not known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. This is God's Word. I want to preach to you this morning on these six verses under the title, The Reason for Guilt. Let's pray and ask God for His help. Father, we ask that You do help us today. Help me as I preach to preach Your truth faithfully. I pray that You would open our hearts to receive it, to be shaped by it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Verse 7. He begins by saying, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin. In this part of Romans, Paul has been asking a series of antagonistic questions. In chapter 6, verse 1, Paul asks, should we go on sinning so that grace may abound? <coughs> he, <coughs> excuse me. he responds by saying, certainly not. By the time he gets to verse, 16, uh, verse 15, chapter 6, verse 15, he asks another question. He says, since we're not under the law, but under grace, should we go on sinning? And he says, certainly not. And then he teaches on our union with Christ. We're united with Jesus. We're not united with the law. And then by the time we get to chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, Paul uses this analogy of a marriage. And he says, it's as if you used to be married to the law, but you died and were raised again from the dead, freed from that first married, marriage, and now remarried to Jesus. Law and grace. We get to verse 7, and Paul asks another antagonistic question. Is the law sin? So are you saying, Paul, that God's law is bad? Are you saying that God's law is sin? Why does the law lead us to sin and guilt if the law is not sin? Thank you, sir. Auntie Nan is my great aunt who is blessed into her 90s. And I remember a year or two ago, she was commenting on her experience going through the pandemic. Just in case you forgot, 
March of 2020, we had this little thing called the coronavirus, and it caused a shutdown. Um, you know, if you're two or younger, you probably don't remember. Um, and during the shutdown, all of the restaurants were closed. Everything was, you know, we, we couldn't go out. And my, my aunt, Antonin, Aunt she was like talking about her experience. And she said that because of her own health issues, she said she didn't leave the house for weeks. And she said during that time, she said, I so badly wanted to go to a restaurant. It didn't have to be a nice restaurant. It just had to be a restaurant. Any restaurant would have been fine. And then she said, the strangest thing happened. When the ban lifted, my desire to go to a restaurant went away. And now I don't want to go to a restaurant. And so I kind of laughed, like you did. And I said, that reminds me of how we are with the law of God. You know, when something is banned, it increases our desire for it. And now when we can have something that's good and right, we don't want it. Isn't that interesting? Knowing what we should do often leads us to want to do the opposite. Knowing what we can't do often leads us to want to do it. The law then, Paul has been showing us this, never brings us to righteousness. The law never produces righteousness, but rather the law exposes our inner rebellion. So in verse 7, he goes on to say, if it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin. I wonder if you've ever encountered God's holiness. If you've ever encountered a standard of what is right, and that very command awakened the sin in your life and exposed corruption. And when it does, when it did, it leads to guilt. Now we feel guilty. Because now all of a sudden we have this standard that we know that we are breaking. And guilt, by the way, is a terrible feeling. I wonder if anybody knows what guilt feels like. What do we do with guilt? You know, some people then just show a cold shoulder to God's commands. They plug their ears at His precepts. They run from responsibility, whereas others embrace a law religion and just try to do good and try to do right and hope that through trying to obey the law that they would somehow remove their own feelings of guilt, but it never really does. Because the law requires of us what we cannot do. The law exposes our sin. It entices us to become a rebel at the very mention of the command. So, whether you are a rebel or whether you are a legalist, we are all wrapped in guilt. How do we then deal with our guilt? It's there. It's ever before us. Have you ever wondered why God allows guilt at all? Like, if, if God is God, God has a reason for everything that He does. 
So that, mean, that means God even has a reason as to why he would allow us to feel guilt. So to understand the reason for guilt, we have to understand God's reason for the law. Eric, over the last month, gave us a two-part series on the moral law of God. And it's interesting to think, like, why did God even give us the law at all, which Eric brought up in his series? God didn't have to. Think about that. God never had to tell us anything. He never had to reveal his standard to us, but he did. Why did God reveal his standard? And then why, in revealing his standard, does he then allow us to to understand that standard, to comprehend that standard, and to have the mentality to compare that standard to my life, and then to lead me, to allow me to have these feelings of guilt? Why does God do that? One of the primary uses of the law is seen in these six chapters right here. When the law comes, it exposes two problems, really. Let me give you these two problems. Number one, the law exposes our rebel problem, meaning it leads us to sin. In verse 7, Paul makes the claim that the law didn't save. On the contrary, the law revealed sin. He goes on to say, if it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin. In my imagination, I picture young Paul as, as he's growing up in his Jewish environment, and he's ignorant of these, these, uh, uh, the law. He's ignorant of God's requirements, and he just has feelings of childhood innocence. And now he's 13 years old. And he's going to school like all good Jew Jewish boys at the synagogue, and he's learning the law of God. And by the time they get to the 10th commandment, which is what? Number 10? Thou shalt not? Come on, somebody. Covet. The answer is covet. Thou shalt not? Come on, somebody. Covet. Number 10. Thou shalt not covet. We're going to memorize these 10 commandments one day. He gets to the 10th commandment, and he learns that he's not supposed to covet. As his tutor explains, this means, boys, that you are not to, re uh, to, to desire what somebody else has. You're not to want what God has given to somebody else. And Paul, all of a sudden, starts looking around the room. And he realizes, I want everything. <laughs> he, he, he sees the, the new pair of J's that that one kid is wearing, because, you know, like, Everybody wore Jordan sandals back then <laughs> underneath their prayer shawl. And he covets. He begins to covet the attention the other boys get. He gets, begins to covet the, the looks that others have. He begins to covet the success that others have. As he describes it testimonially in verse 8, he says, he, he says I would have not known, verse 7 rather, I would have not known the law what it was, I would have not known, I'm sorry, what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Here, here's what he says. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. 
Look at these action verbs associated with sin. Seizing an opportunity. Producing covetousness. It's as if Paul personifies sin as almost detached from him. In the same way that we might talk about a virus wreaking havoc in our bodies. Like a virus, sin is replicating itself and causing damage. It's now uh, awake in his body. It's sprung to life. And the commandment then produces all kinds of covetousness. The action verbs for sin continue in verse 11. He says, sin seizes an opportunity. Sin deceives me. Sin kills me. And the reason for sin's growth is this use of God's law. Look at verse 8. Second part, he says, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. What does he mean by that? Remember in Genesis, there's two boys, Cain and Abel. They both offer sacrifices to God, and God accepts Abel's sacrifice, and God rejects Cain's sacrifice. And the rejection of Cain's sacrifice leads Cain to rage, to bloodshed, to the first murder, to hatred of Abel. And while rigor mortis sets in on Abel's body, God comes to Cain and has a word with Cain. And God says to Cain, if you, do well, if, if, if you do well, if you do not do well, I'm sorry, if you do not do well, sin, he says, is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. In verse 8, when Paul says that sin lies dead, I think we should understand that to mean that sin is dormant. It's it's crouching at the door of our, our, of our heart. It, it's not as if sin comes into our hearts, but rather sin comes out of our hearts, the sin that was already there. We are not tainted by sin from the outside in, but we're tainted from, by sin from the inside out. Sin is crouching in our hearts from the time we were born, just waiting for a moment, waiting for an opportunity to come along like, like little gizmo turning into a gremlin overnight. Sin uses the law to deceive us. When the command comes, that is sin's opportunity. And that's what Paul tells us. He says that, that sin deceived me. This is the old deception, by the way. Oh, did God really say that you should not eat that fruit? It looks so delicious. God is just trying to keep you from something good. That's why God doesn't want you to do it. God is trying to keep you from being more like Him. That's why, that, that's why He doesn't want you to do it. It is sin's age-old strategy. When the law comes, sin goes to work. So we have a rebel problem. The second problem that the law exposes is our conscience problem. Meaning sin leads me to feelings of guilt. Can I get an amen? 
The poet Thomas Gray penned a word in 1747. And in his poem, he was revisiting his carefree childhood. Uh, he was talking about swimming and uh, playing with, with the ball and, and catching birds. Meanwhile, he says in his poem, around the children, around them, was this grave misfortune of human fate. He said, once carefree souls, a.k.a. children, will grow into adults shackled to chains of anger, fear, and shame, and jealousy, envy, despair, and sorrow. And then he wrote, where ignorance is bliss, tis folly to be wise. You ever heard that phrase? Ignorance is bliss. Ignorance is bliss. Have you ever experienced this? Have you ever experienced the reality that ignorance can be bliss? Meaning, you were once happy with your simple apartment, with your nice little comfortable couch and your little flat screen TV that you bought at Walmart, and, and you're sitting there just so satisfied with the standard of living that you've arrived at, and you get on Instagram and you see Justin Bieber and his wife just go walking, giving a tour through their mansion. And all of a sudden, the standard changes. And you died to the joy of what you had. And you say, man, ignorance of Justin Bieber's lifestyle was my bliss. But you can't go back to ignorance. Look at verse 9 through 11. In these verses, Paul tells us that ignorance of the law was actually bliss. Meaning we were pretty happy before we encountered God's moral standard. And so he's still talking here in past tense of his own pre-conversion experience. Look at verse 9. He says, I was once alive apart from the law. But when the law came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. What does he mean here by once alive, apart from the law? But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Is he saying that he was born spiritually alive and he had no sin? And that somehow when God's law came, that that's actually when he became a sinner and when he entered into spiritual death? Well, the answer is certainly not, because Paul elsewhere makes it very clear that we are all born not spiritually alive, but we are born spiritually dead. So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were by nature, somebody say by nature, children of wrath. So he's using the terms life and death here, alive and dead, in a different sense. What he means by, I was once alive before I encountered God's law, what he's saying is, is I once had no weight on my conscience. Ignorance is bliss. I feel like I, I had life back then. I was happy in my ignorance. I was happy before I came to know God. I was happy before I was satisfied 
in my sin. I lived this carefree life. I didn't feel bad about the things that I did. And then all of a sudden, I come to know the standard of God. And it's like I die. What happened? Well, what happened is the standard changed. The law comes along, and I began to realize I'm not as good as I thought I was. And the conviction, have you ever experienced this? The conviction seems unending, like layer after layer. I think I've taken care of this, and I just pulls back another layer, and there's more crap there. And we just keep on going deeper and deeper into this sense of conviction. Wait, are you telling me that sex outside of marriage is wrong? Okay, I can deal with that. Pull back another layer. Wait, I can't even lust after a woman? Wait, are you telling me I can't smoke out? You telling me that I can't uh, uh, get drunk on wine? Are you telling me I can't take out revenge? Hold up. Are you telling me that I can't idolize money? Like we just keep peeling back these layers of sin. We think we are doing better only to see that we continue to fall. And it's like the deeper we go, the more depth of wickedness we discover. So he says, I used to feel alive. And then I felt dead. Now, some people say, I want to go back to that state of ignorance. <laughs> ignorance was bliss, like, let me sin freely, Lord. And not have this conscience, not have this problem of guilt hanging over my head. Let me go back. But, saints, you can't. You can't go back to a state of ignorance. And I'm going to make my point in just a moment. You don't want to. But you can't go back to the state of ignorance no more than, you know, the person who finds out they have a deadly virus can go back to that carefree innocence prior to that state. The virus is there whether you like it or not. And whether you like it or not, all people will at some point come under conviction of, I use that word conviction lightly, the law of God. What I mean is this, Romans 1. Whether it's through the Word or whether it's through nature, we all know that we're guilty. We all know we're guilty. A couple years ago, I stopped trying to prove to non-Christians that they're guilty because I just believe they know they are. And they're running from it. They're hiding from their guilt. It's ever before them. So the question then becomes for us, why does God allow us to feel guilt at all? And that's the question I want to get to this morning. If the law strengthens sin and condemns our conscience and leads us then to bad feelings, why does God even have guilt at all? What is the reason for guilt? And the problems for most is that most just simply try to escape it through drugs, through productivity and success, through love and relationships, just trying to run from these feelings of guilt. But we can't escape guilt. 
So therefore, we must learn the reason for guilt. So what's his reason? Let me break down the logic for you. It's very simple. Number one, the law awakens sin. Sin brings guilt. And guilt leads us to a Savior. Somebody else other than Tony, clap your hands or say amen or something. You guys are way too quiet this morning. I got to skip to verse 24. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the hardest thing for anyone to learn is that they need a Savior. Without knowledge of our sin, without these feelings of guilt, we will never turn to the Savior. And how many people will live their entire life trying to run from the feelings of guilt, trying to turn a cold shoulder to the commands of God so that they might not have to deal with it, muting these feelings, the very feelings which, if we allow them, will push us to Christ. But instead, muting them, using substances to silence the suffering of guilt, pursuing success high on the pride of life so that we don't have to deal with the feelings, filled with uh, noise and, and people and parties, never to sit long enough in our thoughts because we're afraid of what we will feel, treating their guilt through therapy or relationships or busyness or shopping or you name it so that they might never feel the feelings that could drive them to a Savior. What's God's reason for guilt? Church, allow the full force of guilt to push you into the arms of Christ. That's the reason for guilt to lead us to Jesus. And i got to skip forward to Romans 8, chapter 1, which says this, there is no condemnation. Everybody say, no condemnation. How much condemnation? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is where we deal with our guilt, at the cross. But someone might say, but what if Satan condemns me? Oh, Satan will still condemn you. Satan is called the accuser. Satan has a knack to be able to bring up your past and your current failures and hold them over your head. You're still in sin, says the deceiver. You will never be good enough, says the tempter. You will never be right, says the devil. You are unworthy of forgiveness. Yet the voice of Christ comes along and says, silence, silence. This is one who, who, who is my brother, bought with my blood, adopted by my father. You have no voice in her life. But what if people condemn me? They probably will as well. They probably will. But is God God? And if the highest court says you are forgiven and your guilt is removed as far as the east is from the west, 
then does it really matter what the lesser courts say of you? Jesus responds, fear not, I am with thee, O be not dismayed, for I am thy God, and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand, upheld by my omniscious, uh, my righteous, omnipotent hand. But someone might say this, all right, I can accept the fact that God forgives me but I can never forgive myself. Tim Keller once responded to this. He said, he said this, the person that says that they can never forgive themselves really says that they have an idol. They have failed an idol whose approval is more important than God's. Meaning this, God's approval of you is actually more important than your approval of yourself. I don't have to look to me to find approval. I look to God to find approval. And God says, you are mine, bought with a price, loved from the very beginning of time, from before the creation of the world, set apart for His glory. Saints, sometimes we need good counseling, good therapy, good one-on-one with friends, with Christians, not to make ourselves uh, forget guilt, but to know where to put it, to help us learn how do, I dr- how do I allow these feelings of guilt to drive me to the cross? How do I put, throw this, this guilt that I feel at Christ on the cross, for He alone can take it. Not in a way to escape guilt, but to see the blood of Christ. To see His nail-pierced hands. I need your help at times. To see the, 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 the wound in His side. I need your help at times. To see the, the crown on His head. I need your help at times. We've got to help each other. Be reminded of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And be reminded that His blood is enough. It was His sin that held Him there. It was my sin, rather, that held Him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath had brought me life, and I know that it is finished. Amen? Oh, at the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light. And the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith. I received my sight, and now I'm happy all the day. Amen. This is how we deal with our guilt, church. As I close real quick, a good friend of mine had fallen into a a sin, an atrocious sin. And... He didn't confess it to anybody, kept it to himself, and about a month later or so, a few months later, he had a brain aneurysm, and the doctors couldn't explain exactly why this aneurysm had come. They said it 
very well could be stress, which was kind of strange for his friends because he seemed to have a pretty decent life. Didn't really seem to have much stress in his life. And then sometime later, his index finger stopped working. And again, it was neurological. Why can't you bend your finger? We don't know. What, what, what kind of stress does this guy have in his life? Finally, the weight of conviction became too much. Like, I don't know about you, but guilt is the most stress-inducing feeling that we can have. Do you know what that feels like? To be under that weight? And it became too much for my friend, and he finally confessed it to God, confessed it to the appropriate people, confessed it to those that he loved, that he needed, needed to confess it to. And would you believe that his fingers started working again? David said this of living under guilt. He said, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through groaning all day long. Look, even though we are saved, we can forget the gospel. We don't lose the gospel. We don't lose our salvation. But we can forget the application of the gospel in our life and live under a weight that we don't need to live under. And as we kept silent, my bones wasted away. But somebody say, my groaning doesn't have to continue. Thank you, Tony. After his sin with Bathsheba, David wrote this. He said, blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him. Oh, church, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. The Lord saves those who are crushed in spirit. As Isaiah testified, he says, Surely it was for my benefit that I suffered, su suffered such anguish. In your love you kept me from the pit of destruction. But you have put all my sins behind your back. Or as the prophet Jeremiah cried, Heal me, O Lord, and I will be healed. Save me, and I will be saved. For you are the one I praise. Can you praise Him, church? Can you praise the God who forgives? Can you praise the God who heals? Can you praise the God who restores? Can you praise the God who will allow you to suffer anguish so that you might run to His refuge? Can you praise the God who put all our sins behind His back? That is the God that we have in Jesus Christ. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, we pray that nobody in here would walk out with the guilt over, their own guilt over their head, but that they would see Christ, see His cross, as the sufficient Savior, that they would throw their guilt onto Christ, that they would cling to the cross, cling to Christ, and find joy, find hope, find life.
It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.